This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. There's a whole bunch of technical related stuff this week because I was working on a video and then one part that I needed to progress never showed up, so I had a lot of extra time to do written reviews this week, which is pretty cool, so hopefully anybody's interested in that. Uh, and also, later on in this video will be the giveaway drawing, and it's for the Xbox to Wii adapter with the optical audio output, as well as what is now a brand new HD Retrovision Wii cable to go along with it. Uh, I contacted Ryan from Castlemania, and I guess he had a couple extra ones laying around, so uh, I bought another one from him. So whoever wins it will win a brand new Wii cable, and this is also brand new. Uh, I only took it out of the packaging just to show last week, so uh, whoever wins is going to get a pretty cool solution that'll get your Wii and your original Xbox uh, very high quality component video output. So anyway, let's jump into the news and get to the drawing afterwards. First up is a pretty interesting one. Romhacker Seth has just released a patch for Zelda A Link to the Past that implements a whole bunch of assets that were found in different prototypes of the game. Uh, and they're rightfully calling this one A Link to the Proto. Now, this isn't one prototype. This is a combination of different assets and different changes that have been found across many of the different prototype revisions in the development cycle. Um, and Seth kind of put it together into one, so it feels like what the alternate version of A Link to the Past might have been if during the development process different changes uh, had been made and different decisions had been made. So I haven't had a chance to try it out yet, but it looks really cool. Um, there's a bunch of changes that, that big fans of the game might notice. Uh, if you haven't played it in a few years, there's a few that you probably wouldn't even notice at all, but um, I, I thought it was really neat and I thought it was a really interesting take on the game. So if that's one of your favorites and you haven't played it in a while and just want to experience a, a different version of it, definitely give this one a try. I usually play A Link to the Past every couple of years, um, and you know, the longer I wait between gaming sessions, the less I remember, so it feels more fresh. So I feel like it's been a year or two since the last time I played it, probably closer to three years, to be honest. I feel like this is going to be the next version I play, because it's the same thing that I always loved, just a little bit different. A group of people have just started what they're calling the 16-bit audiophile project, which is a way of attempting to get the best possible quality original analog recordings from Sega Genesis games. And they're able to do this by verifying the Genesis itself and their recording setup with MD Fourier, and then using that hardware setup in order to get rips of the games so that you'd be able to get the original versions of the music that sound the way it would out of an original console. Now, of course, there's a million ways to rip game music from fully digital emulation to using FPGA consoles, but I think this is kind of a neat project because it'll give you a sense of what it really sounded like on a Sega Genesis. And while right now that might not seem too important because there's still plenty of well-working Sega Genesis consoles out in the wild, um, I think this is something that's really cool both for people that enjoy music 
music, but also from a preservation standpoint. Because a 24-bit 96K FLAC file is going to sound the same today and 20, 30 years from now. So um, these consoles, which are still in good working order, could have their music preserved and people could hear how they really sounded, which I think is pretty cool. Um, this is obviously a bit of a, a niche project, and there's plenty of other video game music projects out there. But I kind of like this one, and I also kind of like that people from the MD4EA team are working on it as well. So, um, you know, they're concentrating right now on the most popular games or the games with the best soundtracks, and they're trying to get through a whole bunch of them. You're welcome to submit your own, but you just have to follow the strict guidelines that they put in place, which is totally fair, because it's supposed to be an audiophile project. It's supposed to be something that you obsess about details where no one else could probably hear the difference, and it says audiophile right in the title just to, to warn people coming into it. So, a very neat project, um, and something I'll certainly be following in the future. The all-in-one kits for the GBS control is finally up for sale, and uh, it's the same one that I showed in my video about six months ago, but after taking a look at it, they went back and added a whole bunch of different refinements, uh, and I, I really think it's it's what you would call a mature product at this point, even though it's just been released, because it's been through a ton of testers, um, and it's something that I've been testing myself for a while that I really like. The first batch of pre-orders is already sold out, but there'll be another one up very shortly, and there's a lot of other info about this project that's very relevant, so I figured now's the perfect time to talk about it. Um, first, the pre-orders this run, and I think possibly even the next one, will uh, sell for $125, and they're for completed units. So this is a turnkey solution that you just plug in your stuff and go. However, kits will be available at some point where you could install your own, and the entire project will be open sourced relatively shortly anyway, which in my personal opinion is an awesome choice because, you know, it costs a lot in order to fund a project like this. I mean, you're you're putting forth a very serious gamble dropping money on something like this. So in my opinion, I think doing something like, hey, I'll sell a couple batches and then open source the whole thing once I've hit break even is an unbelievably fair way to approach something like this. Um, and certainly protects you from something like you make a hundred, you sell out, you're waiting for the next hundred to come in and a certain notorious clone company steals your design, makes a thousand and prices you out before you even made your money back. Unfortunately, that's a realistic fear these days. So uh, it's, it's a very cool uh, adapter and I guess I'll run through it really quick. I highly suggest checking out the video I made about the GBS control project in general, because uh, without knowing that you probably won't understand what I'm about to talk about, but I'll give the short, short version. The GBS 8200 boards are kind of junky, generic solutions that badly scale video games, and Rama has come up with a software hack for it that completely changes them and actually makes it an incredible tool for retro gaming. And the GBSC All-in-One is a kit for that that kind of helps break out all of the different features in a hardware form as well. So it's got HDMI output, which you could only use HDMI or VGA, not both at the same time, but it is switchable and, uh, you know, the, the, the way that the circuit is built is completely safe. Um, also, there's a sync stripper and a SCART input built in, which is pretty awesome for retro gaming, as well as the VGA and component inputs in the front. Um, the GBS software in general has been weird with me in VGA, but the component video and SCART uh, inputs of the all-in-one have worked fine for me, so that's always a good thing. Um, 
overall, this project, if you really want to analyze it, as I showed in the video, it's not quite as sharp as something like an open source scan converter, either with optimal timings or just in generic mode. However, it's a really respectable solution. Um, and, and I'm zooming in a million times here for anybody who's watching the video of this. But, you know, it, it's something that for the price and for the features, it's a completely respectable solution that you would that would look great on, uh, you know, on your average TV gaming at a, the correct distance and all that stuff, not zooming in a million percent like I am here. Um, but it's not the scaler to end all scalers like some some odd fanboys claim it is. I think it's incredible that I think uh, if the features that it's best at are what you need for your setup, then yes, this is the best for you. Or if you just want a really incredible tool to have in your toolbox, uh, specifically the motion adaptive deinterlacing is really good. The downscaling is impressive. And something I didn't touch upon in the video, the zoom function is pretty awesome as well. Uh, and I didn't really notice a sharpness difference um, when I just kind of messed around with zoom settings and tried to get it to fill the screen top to bottom in uh, 1080p mode. So all of these things are pretty impressive and definitely something that you would want to take a look at. And this GBSC all-in-one kit alone is uh, as high a quality as I've personally tested so far. Um, the original capture that I took with my hand-modded units had a ton of interference on it. Um, I'm kind of zooming into that now. So it's it's definitely improvement an improvement over that. However, I don't know what that means. That could mean that each one of these GBS boards from the factory is completely different. It could mean that um, the way I routed the wires in mine are causing some kind of interference. Uh, I don't know. I, I would just expect that there is definitely going to be a tolerance and quality with these boards, uh, but not with the kits. The kits all seem to be pretty high quality and seem to be a pretty good deal. So uh, thanks to the team for making these. Uh, hopefully they'll be available for purchase again fairly soon, or at the very least, the kits would be available for purchase as well. And I'll repost the info that you would need when just the kits are available. Uh, and for now, just check out Zero's webpage and uh, see when they're back in stock. A second kit for the GBS Control project was announced as well this week, uh, a Kickstarter campaign by Chipnetics Computing for two different models. One is a base model that they're calling the Slipgate, which is $135 and seems like an updated version of the one that they already have on Tindy. Um, the one that I talked about a few months ago is available as a do-it-yourself kit. Uh, or a pre-assembled one that's what the standard that you'd find these days, a, a kind of a hand-soldered version of this, whereas the slipgate looks to include a custom circuit board and seems like a bit more refined version of doing that. Um, there's also a version called the Slipgate plus Quad Damage, which is $245, and that actually includes either a four-port SCART switch or a four-port VGA switch built in. And an interesting feature of that is the software itself that Rama created um, will be forked and a new version will be posted that allows each of these inputs to have a profile assigned to them. And uh, I believe you could already have profiles at the moment with the current software. You just have to manually select which one you want to use, just like with the OSSC and the FrameMeister. Whereas with this, you could always have port one set to this profile, port one set to that one, which I guess might come in handy. Um, I'm not really sure the use case for that, though, because I think most people have more than four uh, four consoles that they would want to set up. However, I, I guess if you had four sets of consoles, maybe you could connect those. 
I don't really know. It's it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, the price certainly is fair considering what you get with it. Um, you know, it does not. It, it's not cheap to make something like this. I just my only reserves when looking at it are a lot goes into making just a retro gaming switch alone, let alone interfacing it through all of this stuff. I mean, even a manual push button switch still requires some pretty meticulous routing to make sure you don't get interference spilling over, but then adding an auto, uh, auto sensing capabilities, trying to interface it with the GBS control hardware, adding in a manual control function as well. These are all hurdles that a lot of companies have not been able to get over. So it's kind of, it seems a little ambitious to me that a $245 device would be able to do all of that as good as the separate versions. So by no means am I trying to insult Chipnetics Computing. I would be saying that about anybody that tried to design something like this that hasn't already designed something like this. So uh, I just think it's fair to point out. And I also think it's totally fair to point out that this is uh, a typical Kickstarter scenario where when you're buying this, you're paying for an uh, essentially an unfinished product where you're funding the rest of the development and the, in my opinion, realistic timetable of shipping in June. Whereas the project I just talked about, it's, it's done. If there are any tweaks, it's super minor stuff. And in fact, the beta testers have been pummeling those all-in-one kits for six months, giving a lot of feedback. So, uh, you know, it, once again, no insult, no taking sides, get whichever one you want. But I just thought it was important to be transparent about one's a completed product and one looks awesome. Uh, you know, the slipgate looks really cool and is certainly fairly priced. It just, it's not quite done yet. So I just figured... That would be something to mention. And also, there's a lot of little things involving the GBS hardware that, uh, you know, obviously is going to be common knowledge with the open source design, but it's still a lot of stuff that you wouldn't have known unless you had gone through and made some of these before. Now, once again, Chipnetics already is selling one on Tindy, uh, but I don't think it includes any uh, extra features and stuff. So hopefully they're able to... to get through all of that and make a pretty awesome product. It certainly looks cool. I like the idea. And I especially love the whole, here's an open source project, meaning the GBS control software. Let me put my own spin on it. Let me, you know, add my own ideas, fork the project um, according to the rules. And, you know, it just, it's a kind of a cool celebration of what open source and retro gaming should be like. Um, the Kickstarter campaign's got some very interesting wording on it. I think you all know my opinions on when people try to get creative with their marketing, but you know, hopefully they'll uh, they'll consider upgrade or updating some of the wording to make it a little more accurate to what you're getting. Because once again, I always want to curb people's expectations. I love the GBS control project. That's why I spent so long making that video. <laughs> but it's not a pixel-perfect, flawless scaler that you could tweak to emulation quality. Now, most people don't need that. I just I just see so many people out there talking about this project as if it's an OSSC killer and a Framemeister killer, and it's, it's none of those things. It stands completely on its own. Its features are amazing all by itself. So uh, if you want more info on either of these, I guess I've talked way too long about GBS stuff in this, this podcast already, but check out both posts. I have tons of details of everything in there, uh, and then check out their respective links to the actual products. 
The company Back Office has just released a replacement board for the original Famicom that aims to solve two problems. First, it allows for audio-video output right from the rear without any cutting whatsoever, and it adds some power protection in case you plug in the wrong polarity adapter. So now with this board, you won't blow out your Famicom, whereas with the original, that was a potential. Believe it or not, for, uh, for such a simple design, there's actually a lot to talk about with this because of the Famicom itself. So uh, I want to go over what this does, but I also want to go over some of the testing that I did. Um, since it replaces the power circuit and since it does not include a heat sink, I wanted to do some thermal tests. And these are not insane, crazy deep dive thermal tests like I used to do for the company I, I used to work for. I didn't put it in a thermal chamber. There wasn't a million heat probes with expensive equipment, but I did use heat probes. There were two of them, one right on the 705 and the other in an ambient area. And I tested the original versus this replacement and it seemed to perform the same so the lack of heat sink and the fact that it uses the ground plane and the board itself to dissipate heat didn't seem to make any difference whatsoever uh, the video output itself was very good um, the famicom that someone was nice enough to gift me a few years ago had an existing mod in there uh, i was able to remove the glue and clean that up uh, and replace it with this board and uh, it performed better so it was definitely brighter it was definitely more along the correct brightness lines, uh, but it didn't clear up any of the crazy interference I had in my Famicom. I did check to make sure that it wasn't too bright, just, you know, just because. I threw it on the oscilloscope, and it actually was still well within the maximum uh, voltage that's recommended for this. Um, and, it, you know, overall, it definitely performed better. So if it's something that you wanted for your original Famicom, uh, it does provide an easier way to interface with power, and it does also provide a no-cut 3.5-millimeter jack where you could just use a stereo audio cable if you want, but one of them is mono audio, and the other one would be video. The only other thing to note about my testing is that I used a triad power supply, um, which I imagine affected the temperature results quite a lot. Uh, if you're using an aging original Famicom power supply, it would be different. Uh, if you're using one of those cheap $2 replacement PSUs, you might want to just throw that out. However, I absolutely recommend that if you buy this, you buy the Triad PSU. I, I actually think most people using this, using an original Famicom outside of Japan should probably do that because you don't have to worry about Japanese power versus worldwide power. It's a tested and verified solution that could work internationally, uh, and it's the right polarity for this, even though there's protection, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. It just makes sense. If you're going to use the Famicom in another region or if you're going to spend the money to upgrade the power board, you might as well get a good PSU with it as well, which is linked in the post. Um, the only other thing that I saw about it is the 3.5 millimeter jack was kind of right up against the plastic and back, which might be a good thing. Maybe that's providing support so your cable when it plugs in doesn't put pressure on the board. It kind of evenly uh, distributes the pressure. For looks-wise, it would be nice to have either a 3D-printed insert around it uh, or have a, a different part that raises it up. But who knows? Without the plastic underneath, maybe it's putting too much pressure on the replacement board. It was just an observation. I also think it would be neat to have some kind of push-in plastic inserts to cover up the other two holes just to make a better aesthetic look. But other than that, there's no complaints about the board at all uh, and certainly nothing that I would want to change about the product. 
Um, you know, I, there's always room to add features, especially because there's two holes in the back of the Famicom that you could now fill. And the two ideas that I thought would be neat were maybe a potentiometer that adjusts brightness between safe levels. So the you know, about the maximum brightest and lower than that, because a lot of these old consoles have a pretty wide tolerance swing between what they output. So you could buy 10 of them and 10 might output very different brightness levels. So if you have the ability to tweak, uh, I think people might appreciate that. And I always do love a small bit of separation for Famicom uh, and NES stereo. I know a lot of people give me hatred over this, but I think most that do haven't ever listened to themselves. And just the short aside with that, the way the NES and Famicom generates audio, it comes out as two channels, which are blended together to make mono. If you separate those channels into one on each speaker, left and right, my opinion is it sounds terrible, uh, but you do get the separation of the channels. However, if you run that through a potentiometer, you would be able to adjust how much of the separation there is. So I've always suggested to people that depending on your your speakers, that uh, whether it's a stereo or your TV, how far away you're sitting, etc., whatever, leave it at all mono, and then adjust the potentiometer to separate the audio just enough so you notice there's a difference, but not anything else, not anything past that. Usually for me, it's like five or 10%. It's barely anything, but I think it adds a cool depth to it. Uh, and it's certainly not something that's necessary or an, uh, an official experience, but if you have the room to do it uh, and the ability to include maybe an upgraded audio circuit, that might be cool for a pro version of this as well. Um, either way, if you're at all interested in this, uh, check out the post and also check out a video that I embedded. Uh, it's both a, a pretty cool review of the same thing, but in video form, and they show a different installation than I do, depending on which model Famicom you have. So basically, if you're installing this, pop open your Famicom. If it looks like mine, cool. You could uh, follow my instructions. If it doesn't, check out the one in the video, and you'll probably have to follow those instead. Everything is obviously linked right in the post. I decided to test one of those composite and S-Video to VGA adapters that you see on Amazon for less than 20 bucks, and it performed exactly as I thought. Uh, it's still not for use in most gaming solutions, but it absolutely does have its place. Uh, so overall, this adapter and all of the ones that look like it, just sold under a different brand, um, have between one and two frames of variable lag. Uh, and process 240p as if it were 480i, so incorrectly. So overall, it's not at all a good use for console gaming, uh, and certainly not a good use for anything where there's a 240p signal with lots of movement on the screen. However, that amount of latency might be good enough for old computers, and that's actually the context in which this adapter was brought up to me again recently, which kind of sparked the whole conversation. Can you use this with a Commodore 64? And to be perfectly honest, um, you know, if there isn't a lot of movement on the screen and if you're playing games that aren't reaction time based, so strategy games, puzzle games, adventure games, a lot of the old PC games, then it might actually be a pretty cool way to experience them. Um, you know, I, I still think a retro tank is a better product overall, but if you're on a budget and you have an old Commodore 64, it's good enough. I do wish people that review this would would have a would give a more realistic expectation. I think a lot of people that review products like this plug it in and it works, and they get really excited about it and tell people to buy it without understanding how how they operate. But one other very cool feature of this product is the amount of resolutions that it supports. Um, there's a 
ton of different resolutions, and three of them even output at both 60 or 75 hertz. So if you have a monitor that you want to use with your old computer that matches, or the native resolution of the monitor matches one of these, which I imagine it does, it has almost all resolutions in here, then it would actually be a pretty good way to get started, and it would probably look pretty decent. Oddly enough, they call it a VGA adapter, but 640 by 480 isn't one of the resolutions offered, which is weird. Also, just as a, an aside, the one that I got showed up outputting Chinese when you open the menu. So I had to use Google Translate on my phone. And I basically just pressed buttons until I saw something that said English, hit save, and it seemed to work. So if you do purchase one of these, I'm not sure if that's something you'll have to deal with. Um, you know, it Overall, there's absolutely a place for something like this. If you have an old NES and you want to play Mega Man, this is not the choice for you. But if you have a VCR that you want to play on a VGA monitor that supports 800 by 600 or up, you know, I imagine it would be great or laser disc players or, or whatever else. Um, you know, old computers, maybe, or at the very least, a test bed. Maybe you could use this hooked up to an LCD monitor on your workbench if you need to test stuff and then game on a, a real solution or a real monitor. Either way, I just think it's, um, you know, it does exactly what it was advertised to do. You know, it was never advertised as a gaming scaler. It was advertised for things like people who have old security systems that need to get them on a or more modern display of sorts. And I think it's an absolute perfect solution for what it was meant to be used for. So check it out if, uh, if you need either a cheap solution for old computers or if you're just a little more curious on how these things work. Um, I didn't do in-depth testing on the pass-through mode, but one other thing to note is that if you run a VGA cable into this, it, I didn't notice any lag at all added to the pass-through, uh, but I didn't test it with picture-in-picture -picture and all that other stuff. So basically, you know, check it out if you want a, a mini-review on something that probably shouldn't be used for gaming, but could in very specific scenarios. Just a quick update on the GC Loader project. It is in stock and Dan thinks that there's enough of them in stock that it should last for a while this time. It shouldn't be like the past few where even though a significant quantity was purchased, they all sold out within minutes. Uh, there should be enough to go around this time. So if you were waiting on one of these, now's probably the time to pick one up. Also, uh, if you're not familiar at all with the GC Loader, a very quick overview is this is an optical drive emulator for the GameCube that replaces the optical drive itself. It's completely plug and play. Uh, however, there's a million screws in the GameCube. So while it's a super easy mod uh, that I would think anybody with a screwdriver could do, you do require a little bit of patience with it. Um, it is a little bit different in the way it works than some of the plug and play solutions like the SD to SP2 or any of the action replay based ones. You might want to check out previous posts about that and I'll have a video up for it fairly soon, um, probably within a few months just to kind of give an overview of what the project's like. But it's a uh, it's very cool. The only other thing I would add is I love the way it looks with the laser bear 3D printed mount in there. You don't need it. Uh, however, it breaks the SD card out to the top, and when you open the top of the GameCube, it kind of looks like a more stock solution. So I would definitely recommend at least considering that if you're going to pick this up as well. So both seem to be in stock, so if you wanted it, now's the time to pick it up. A prototype was just released for the original Sonic the Hedgehog game that includes a bunch of differences in both level design and graphics, especially in zones like Marble Zone or Spring Yard Zone. 
So if you were kind of interested in some Sonic the Hedgehog history and wanted to see a glimpse into the development, this is definitely a cool ROM to pick up. Uh, there's also a full story behind how the prototype was found and some videos of it working on real hardware. So if you were interested in this, either download the ROM and test yourself or check out Chris's post and all of the links to all of the information you might need. You know, I, I personally love to play these prototypes for a few minutes. I think it's a really neat glimpse into how game development worked back in the day and what these games could have been. And even if they're all just small changes, I just always find it neat. So it's a very cool find that one of the most iconic games of that era now has a prototype available that we could pick through and, and see the differences. There's a few updates for the RetroTink products this week. The first is for the 2X Mini, and a new firmware was released that allows a pass-through mode. Now, I want to be clear that in almost all cases, you would not want to use the pass-through mode. Uh, however, I could imagine a few scenarios where it might actually be a help. To access this mode, just flash it with the new firmware, which is super easy. You just connect it to a PC and run a program. There's no special equipment involved other than a USB cable to your PC. Uh, but flash the firmware, and then if you want to have pass-through mode activated, press and hold the filter button for more than one second and release, and that toggles between 2X mode and pass-through mode. And the scenarios in which you might want to do this would be if you have a VCR that you want to connect to your modern TV, using 2X mode with Bob D interlacing probably isn't the look that you're going to be going for. However, passing through and letting your TV do the deinterlacing might be a better solution. Now, remember that when your TV does the deinterlacing, it usually adds a ton of lag, even in game mode. However, for something like a VCR or Laserdisc player, it might be a decent choice. And also, I wouldn't suggest getting the mini just for VCRs and Laserdisc players. The cheap converters I talked about a while back for less than 20 bucks that you could find on Amazon are fine for those. Uh, however, if you already own a mini for gaming, that's a perfectly good solution and something I would recommend. Also, there is the scenario in which, what if you have a 480i game from maybe PlayStation 2 that's uh, a role-playing game or you know a turn-by-turn -turn game or strategy game or something where reaction time plays absolutely no part in it whatsoever. Um, if that's the case, you might actually prefer the deinterlacing that your TV has. So having a pass-through mode would be fine. And all of the reasons that you would want to use a retro tank might be out the window because just letting your TV deinterlace it very slowly would be totally fine for turn-by-turn role-playing and, and stuff where you don't have to worry about timing. So overall, it's a, a small but pretty cool feature that I think most people probably wouldn't use, but the people that would use it would be very happy that it's there. Once again, especially people that have a VCR, have old game consoles, and just want one solution to work with all of them. So very cool that, uh, that Mike's adding these features in, and there's one more to talk about this week. Mike also released a new firmware for the RetroTINK 2X Pro that adds some more functionality to the comb filter switch. Now, this functionality is already built into the Mini and doesn't apply at all to the 2X SCART because there's no composite video or comb filter in that anyway. However, if you have a 2X Pro, you have a pretty cool new bonus. Um, with that filter switch, you're able to boost the brightness just slightly in retro mode. And I took a screenshot of a composite video outputting Sega Master System to demonstrate what this is like. I highly recommend checking out the post and viewing this in full size to see for yourself. 
but the master system looked really sharp when the filter switch was set to auto mode, but the jail bars were painfully present, way more noticeable than they would ever be on a CRT. And when you flipped the Tink 2X Pro to retro mode, the filter cleared up those jail bars really well, but it made the master system's output a little bit too dark. And once I updated to the new version 1.7 firmware, auto mode looked pretty much the same. Retro mode still cleared up the jail bars, but the brightness was boosted a little bit. Uh, and it's, in my opinion, a perfectly acceptable signal now. Um, the original one was as well. You would just need to crank up the brightness on your TV in order to compensate, whereas you probably don't need to raise the brightness on this one at all. So if you use the RetroTINK 2X Pro with composite and S-Video consoles, and, and heck, even in pass-through mode with VCRs, because pass-through mode does apply the filtering, I would toggle between each mode and see what looks best to you. There's no right answer. Uh, none of them add lag. It's really just preference and what your eyes prefer. Uh, and also something to note is that if you're using the component video inputs, especially with something like the HD RetroVision cables that also have a brightness switch on it, uh, retro mode will probably be too bright in that scenario. So my suggestions leave it in auto mode pretty much all the time and flip retro mode on when using composite video. I guess try it with S-Video, but it's really more of a composite video thing and just see whichever your eyes prefer on your own personal display. But Either way, it's awesome that Mike continues to update these products and give us free functionality on stuff that we already own. So thanks very much to him. The Dreamcast port of the Atomus Wave game Dolphin Blue is now fully playable on Dreamcast hardware. For anybody that uh, doesn't remember that situation, basically the hacker Megavolt 85 figured out that you could change games from the Atomus Wave arcade platform to run on the Dreamcast. And you wouldn't even really call it a port because it's the same hardware. It's almost just remapping the controls and doing so in an efficient way that doesn't add lag. So you're essentially getting the really cool arcade game Dolphin Blue playable on Dreamcast hardware. But there was a bug with that game where once you passed a certain point, enemies would stop spawning and that was pretty much it. Well, the hacker YZB, the, the same ROM hacker that has been behind the recent 4-megabyte Saturn hacks, was able to hack Dolphin Blue so that you could play the entire game, uh, and the issue doesn't happen anymore. One other note is that if you are trying to uh, play it and experience any issues, it's recommended that you try to defragment your SD card or try another. I actually haven't, uh, I haven't ever run into that issue, but maybe that's something with a, a GDMU or something like that, but... Either way, if uh, you want to experience the very awesome-looking game Dolphin Blue, which I guess kind of looks like Metal Slug with dolphins on the water, I don't know. It looked really awesome when I watched Ray's and, uh, and Smoke Monsters videos on it. But if you want to experience that on a Dreamcast and you have any way to play backups on your Dreamcast, this is definitely something that you'll want to check out because it's now fully playable. The company Arcade 1UP has released their expected release schedule for 2021, and there's actually quite a bit of stuff to talk about. The first is that none of the designs are final, and they're still taking feedback from the community, uh, mostly with little aesthetic things, but they seem to be listening, which is pretty awesome, uh, and they have some really interesting stuff coming out. So... The first I'd like to talk about is the Dragon's Lair cabinet that they announced. And 
I like this for a few reasons. First, it uses HD rescans of the original footage. So technically, this is the clearest version that you could get in the arcade. But it's also a scenario in which a little bit of emulation delay and a little bit of inaccuracies wouldn't kill the Dragon's Lair experience, at least in my opinion. So this is the, the perfect scenario for a software emulator in a box like this. Uh, also, they have second screen capabilities for your score that you could have uh, either you could add your own modded in there and use the HDMI output for that. I believe that's what they said in the live stream. Or you could have a cell phone app where you just load it up, clip it to the middle right under the marquee and get your scores that way. And I just think that's a really cool way to keep the cost down. Um, maybe if you don't care about it, you don't do it at all. But overall, it just it's kind of a, a whole interesting scenario and how to do stuff like this and i'm really curious if uh you know if that could the dual screen thing could be done for other games overall it's pretty neat they they also redid space ace in the same uh in the same style um they've also announced a four-player x-men game which is pretty cool because I imagine it was not easy to get licensing from Marvel to release this. So absolute kudos to that team for going through the lengths in order to get that. Um, same thing with their their other previous releases that uh, that have you know it's it's cool that they're taking the time to do this. They also said that they're re-releasing Tempest with a cabinet that more closely matches the original and includes a spinner worth gaming on. I think the original clicky spinner they used, I think people, they must not have really realized how important that was to the Tempest gameplay, which is a little disheartening seeing that they're a company who's trying to remake these things, but we'll circle back to that in a minute. I'm sticking with the positive for now. So you should be able to get Tempest uh, as well as a few others in what they're calling a legacy collection. So basically just re-releases of their best-selling cabinets with all of the updates that they've done over the years integrated in, as well as some software updates. Um, No extra features, just different artwork. And they're also releasing software updates for those original cabinets. I think one of the things that bugged people was some weird video filter that you could not turn off on Pac-Man, which I guess that those will be up. Uh, the updates will be available at some point in the future. They also announced Killer Instinct with Wi-Fi capabilities built in. And here's where my opinions on Arcade One Up kind of go, kind of get a little downhill in that. I love that they're trying to release these. I, I absolutely love that they're taking the time to make the artwork nice and to have some some cabs that have some really fun experiences in them. But I think once you cross the line into fighting games, and especially games like Street Fighter that have have and have had a massive worldwide pro-competitive community around them, you have to at least acknowledge and understand that, you know, Maybe there's a different version that you should be releasing for those. Maybe have your legacy edition for the casual fan that just wants to smash some Street Fighter buttons a couple times a year and have a neat looking cabinet. And maybe put out a more expensive version that's dedicated to the pro crowd that might actually be interested in using these for competition. Because we've seen with things like Cloud Parsec you are able to use emulation in competitive environments and you are able to do that over the web even. And it's not exactly the same, but it's good enough where even pros agree that it's certainly fine for that tournament and it was certainly enough fun. So it seems like Arcade 1UP as a company is embracing 
the the little mods that you could do you know the there's a whole community out there of doing things like you know adding different artwork changing the controls one of my favorite things to do to all my emulation cabs is take where the coin button is and replace whatever sticker they have with just a light up button that when you press it adds coins stuff like that you know they're embracing but i really hope they kind of circle back and realize when you're talking about games like uh like dragon's lair and i guess maybe even some beat-em-up games having the perfect emulation experience isn't necessary for most people and maybe i'm wrong about this please correct me if i'm wrong but i just think that in a non-competitive environment, playing X-Men with my friends on a reasonably priced cabinet with, you know, that's lightweight that I could order now that won't need restoring, I think that'd be pretty neat. And if there was variable emulation delay and some inaccuracies, I don't think that would ruin the experience for me. It might if I was going for a world record high score or one PPing or something, but just in general, I think that's fine. But if I bought one of these cabinets and I wanted to go practice up Street Fighter and then go play against my friends, I just I don't think it could be used for that. So I hope they'll spend some time at least considering what it's like to to game on a prof- in a professional environment and how they are kind of crossing a line when you talk about Killer Instinct, Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat. A lot of those things that don't really matter in other in emulation environments absolutely do and in listening to the live streams they did I'm, I'm not sure if they really grasp that or to be honest if they really understand how to make any of those changes so hopefully they'll just do what they should have done from the beginning and keep doing what they've been doing with their awesome cabs for general use but call some pro gamers and some other nerds in to help with the fighting games so that people could actually buy these things and have tournaments on them because to be honest i would love to see a tournament with you know, one of these in New York, one of these in the West Coast where people are battling online on a technical Street Fighter console, but, you know, not the original. I think that would be cool, but I don't think that you'd be able to do that with what they currently offer. So we'll see. They're obviously taking feedback. Um, you know, they were seemed to be listening in the live stream. So uh, if you want more info on that, uh, the live stream is still available. You could watch. Uh, if you want to see some examples of how to use these arcade one-up cabinets uh, in non-competitive but really fun environments. Check out Console Kits, Justin's channel. I especially loved the Star Wars one. That seemed like something where if I had the space, I totally would have bought that cabinet from them. And even though it's not the original and it doesn't have vector monitor in it, it just it looked like they did such a great job on it. So, you know, hopefully they'll they'll get a little bit more technical, but it seems like they do have really cool products for the general audience and and maybe some experts could even enjoy dragon's lair if that's something they want to add to their collection so shockingly enough the game paprium is out and it's pretty good Uh, and that's very weird because i honestly thought that the game would never be released i thought everybody had lost their money for good and you'd never see the light of day again but uh, a few different reviewers had posted their thoughts on it and i really wanted to share those specifically with everybody uh first matt phillips the creator of tanglewood both spoke his thoughts on the game as well as kind of the frequently asked questions and the scenario around it. Uh, And Matt's somebody who used original development hardware to create his game. And I think his insight on the technical side into it is probably the best person on the planet that you could listen to in this. Um, Also, GameSack did a pretty cool review and showed even the stick that they shipped with it, which I thought was great. He also showed the leather thong 
I thought Joe was kidding at first. I had no idea that that was a thing. It was kind of insulting. I I, I won't even talk about it. You've got to watch the video to see it. It's com- kind of unbelievable that they'd even waste money on that. But also, the, the conclusion to Stika's video series on what happened to Paprium, uh, which is definitely the video I was waiting on because Stika's been covering this uh, in real time, I guess. And I, I highly recommend watching his video series if you're interested in this and don't know what all the uh, all the negativity is about. I certainly saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of people that didn't understand the negativity and also a, a weirdly shocking amount of fanboys jumping in. I don't know where that came from, but uh, all three of these are excellent reviews. And to kind of sum it up in no particular order at all, at all uh, it's a decent game. Um, some people call it one of the best beat-em-ups on the Genesis, or at the very least, it's worth playing if you have the opportunity to. There is no Datenmeister chip. That custom chip that they talked about doesn't exist. Uh, the, the, C, or the, the PCB uses all off-the-shelf parts in their own custom programming, so it's essentially uh, the same thing that you would expect uh, if you were just going to make your own game with extra features and add your own code to it. That is not an insult. It's still pretty amazing that they did what they did with it. It's just weird that they kind of lied and said they created their own chip. They didn't. They created their own custom software for existing chips, which is still a really impressive feat. I don't know why they just didn't brag about that, because it's true. Now, there is a heat sink in this cart that covers the the proof that this is all original uh, off-the-shelf parts, and it seems to be falling off of everybody's cart. And the problem is it's metal. So if it falls off and touches two spots and uh, and shorts it together, uh, you could fry the cart, maybe even your Genesis. I don't know. So if you bought Paprium, I would immediately open up the cart and just pop that thing off and and not even worry about it again. Uh, So the game is still a bit buggy, which you could notice in some boss fights as well as some enemy AI. But there's a very weird port on the top that supposedly is going to allow you to update it. So who knows if there's ever actually going to be an update to that. Uh, The arcade stick's supposedly good. The sound generated by the custom chips is excellent. But I think a lot of people thought that while it's great and it's appreciated, it wasn't necessary. So if the same game was released, you know, on time without all the drama, but without special audio, it would still be a really amazing game. Uh, it's obviously opinion based, so whatever. Um, refunds have not yet been issued. There's still a bunch of excuses and weirdness involving that. Uh, and on top of that, the creator of the game, Fonzie, seems to enjoy saying rude things to people who have paid for the game and it's strange you should read the uh you know read matt's post on it and also in the sticker review he kind of goes over all that too it's it's kind of insulting that somebody would take people's money disappear for years and come back and just insult everybody i, I don't know what that's all about um and uh also just kind of as an aside if if you're looking to purchase this one there is a classic edition for 130 and then a special edition which i think everybody kind of agrees that the classic editions have much better value for your money yes you get a bunch of other stuff in the limited edition but the case is weird the cardboard's weird it doesn't come in a plastic that you could put on your shelf so 
you know, I think that's kind of my five minute overview without playing it myself. This is kind of like the meta review of me just echoing other people's statements. So if you didn't care any more about it, this should be all the info that you need. Uh, but if you really were into the game and you wanted to hear more stories behind it, I definitely recommend all three. Checking out Matt's posts on Twitter, uh, checking out Joe's review, and of course the entire series from Stika that that really just digs in and explains how weird this whole thing was start to finish. So, you know, Fonzie's weird-ass ego aside, seems like an awesome game, and if it was ever reasonably priced, I would definitely buy one. All right, giveaway time. Um, I'm going to be doing this in real time like I usually do just to prove to everybody that this thing's real and it takes a, uh, a little bit longer but you know what it's um at least it shows that uh at least it shows that i'm doing everything totally legit so uh putting in the url of last week's video filter duplicate users filter comments based on a specific text uh it takes a while to get the comments so there's probably going to be some silence sorry i'll fill it with my normal word flapping oh no that was pretty quick okay so start raffle and pick random winner Nick C. Uh, Nick C., congratulations. Um, you are the official winner of the consoles for you, Xbox to Wii adapter with uh, the pro version with the optical audio output and the brand new HD RetroVision uh, component video cables that will match up to it. Um, thank you very much to everybody who took the time to post. And I think everything's going okay with the whole Warrior 64, so I should be able to announce the giveaway for that next week to be drawn the following week. So thank you and congratulations to Nick. Please uh, comment in um, to comment down below in this one and I guess maybe respond to your other one and we'll figure out how to how to get this to you hopefully you don't live too far away so I'm going to spend a million dollars in shipping but uh, either way it's yours I'll gladly pay for it and uh, thanks again to Jan from consoles for you for allowing me to give one of these away once again I'm sorry for waiting so darn long to do it and uh, hopefully Nick will enjoy it well, that's it for this week. It was kind of a longer one because there was a lot of tech talk based on all of the written reviews that I had done this week, which once again, I was only able to do all of those and all of that firmware analysis because I was waiting on one tiny little part in order to come in so I could start the f shooting the footage for this coming week's video, which should be done by the weekend. Um, so if you're new to this, you know, it's not usually this long and there's not usually so much tech stuff in it, but I like doing both. So uh, hopefully everybody kind of enjoyed it still. But either way, as always, thanks so much to everybody that watches, that listens, uh, that plays nicely in the comments. Um, and of course, and especially thank you to everybody that supports on Patreon and Floatplane and any other service, because without you, none of these reviews, none of this behind the scenes research, none of the development and testing I'm involved in, none of that stuff would happen without you. So thank you all so much. And I'll see you next week with probably a lighter podcast because I won't have as much time to do all of the written stuff that I did this week. <laughs>